1: All right. Hey, everybody. Welcome to this fantastic Monday afternoon, January 9th, in the interesting year so far of 2023. As always, I want to begin by saying thank you all so much for tuning in, logging on, and hanging out with me and my all star panel for just a little while. Um, I, you know, everybody was kind of chuckling before we came on the air. Um, and you're going to, Probably chuckle along with us because what we have to talk about can only be described as some of the dumbest crap that I have ever experienced in my life. And let me just, excuse me, let me just throw caution to the wind because I know we have some folks from insurance companies who watch this program, who listen to the podcast, and I know they do because. They tell me they do. Um, If you are going to assess an overpayment against a client and you're going to tell them that you did statistical sampling and that you did an extrapolation, can you please make sure that you actually did that stuff? Because when you get onto a phone call with somebody like myself, who is often full of piss and vinegar because I know that it's going to be a colossal waste of my time dealing with some of this nonsense because you have ineffectively you have been ineffective. Let's just put it that way. Okay. So I'm gonna pause there because I don't want to take this away from my my buddy Paul Spencer. But Paul, lead this discussion today. Now, to protect the ignorant leave out the name of this insurance company, but let's let's go ahead and get into it.
2: So recently a client came to us uh, via a uh, a law firm that wanted us to challenge an overpayment determination by a major commercial insurance company Uh, that that an hour sit down Uh, and what what we had was an audit of eleven patients that had this particular insurance, and I, boy, I'm I'm, I'm treading through a minefield because I know I'm going to slip up. That's that's why I'm talking so slowly. But uh, there were some documentation issues with regard to the way they did time-based services and uh, some other issues related to services within a patient home that were, they could have been documented better, but the way the insurance went about it was they decided to take all the claims for these 11 patients and say overpaid and extrapolate to a number that ended up being seven figures. Uh, and then we got deeper into the call and, uh, usually I am, uh, the teller to Sean's pen when we get on to uh, these calls where uh, Sean does most of the uh, talking and I just do some listening on the call and uh, we were texting back and forth as the call was going on because we both of us couldn't believe that we were hearing exactly what we were hearing when we asked them, you know, well, how did you do to, you know, how did you do the uh, statistical sampling? It's like, well, we chose these patients and that was the sample. And then he (laughs) followed up again. Well, what type of testing did you do? Well, we took these 11 patients and that was the sample. Yeah. And it, you know, and we just ended up in this, continuing, ever-circling vortex of circular
1: logic that went nowhere. That was devoid of logic. Now, Paul, confirm for our panel and for our listeners that at one point I actually said to him, I am not sure where you were educated, but it clearly has not worked. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, well,
2: uh, when you started talking about uh, your expertise in these cases, which, uh, you know, half, half the reason I work as your right-hand man is based on that expertise, you know, when you started talking about how many years you have been doing this, you know, they wanted to basically just dismiss that, and it's like, oh, we're, you know, we, well, we don't doubt your uh, amount yeah, of well,
1: experience, but yeah, so blah, here, blah, 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 blah. Here, you know, here's, here's the interesting like, part of all <laughs> and 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 here's why i wanted to lead with this right yeah okay so when an insurance company sends you a notification that they performed a statistically valid random sample it's what they call an svrs of your documentation that means that they actually had a universe of patients okay and that universe of patients could be spread out over one year two years five years or ten years okay in order to get a sample frame, and this is what I was trying to explain to these individuals <laughs> a sample is not your entire universe of 11 patients. It can't be. There is nothing random about it, it is not a valid sample. So I questioned them Could you please explain to me what type of simulation did you use to determine? the logic behind your sample framing. Did you use a Monte Carlo simulation? Did you use Cochrane's theory to test it? Did you use a one-sided blind T-test? What, what did you use? Please, please help me, because I'm trying to help you guys. Please help me understand your logic. So this other genius comes online, and he says, well, we didn't, actually do an extrapolation I said no 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 wait a minute your letter says you did an extrapolation and your counterpart the first genius that we were talking to actually said we took the sample of 11 patients which was the entire sample Okay, that's your universe genius it's not your sample that's your universe Second, you said to me, I took the 100% error rate and I then applied it to all future payments that were going to be made. I said, so you decided to make an extrapolation, not on what was paid for a universe of patients, but for what you were anticipating would be paid in the future? Yeah. Once again, yeah. I would strongly encourage you to go back to where you got your education and ask for a refund. Long story short, as we went around what I can only describe to you as a carousel of imbeciles, we got to the end of the, of, of the situation, which was there were only 11 patients that were evaluated. Of those 11 patients, they determined that all 11 patients were fatally flawed. And then they said, if all patients were fatally flawed, then that means all patients that they were going to bill for in the future were fatally flawed. And based on what we paid, we're going to assume that we would have paid $1.7 million. So even though we haven't paid you that amount of money, we're actually going to ask you for that back. But here's the best part to the whole entire story. And Paul, I'm going to kick it back to you. Two times. Lisa, I promise you I will never hold back. Two times. Two times. I not cautioned them him. <laughs> because they accused our client of committing fraud. They accused our client. I said to him, We Paul's on the phone. Paul Paul was on the phone. Tell me if I'm I'm not saying it correctly. I said, now hold on a minute. I need to caution you. You just accused a provider of of committing fraud for which you conducted no investigation, you did no statistical sample, you applied an extrapolation to claims that haven't even been submitted yet, and you now want us to allow you to inflame a situation to defame a provider by accusing them of fraud. And he said, that's correct. Yeah, I can't make this yeah. stuff
2: up. Yeah. I remember when Abbott and Costello at the end of their career was, were doing monster movies. This was Abbott and Costello versus the minority report. I, I've never heard anything so absolutely ridiculous in my entire life. And then they, you know, I'm it, particularly the fraud allegation. I mean, you, you better have had somebody in that practice who saw nothing happen on the days when you're reporting services to make that assessment to do that from an administrative audit is the is the height of institutional arrogance you know it it's just
1: stunning to me yeah it's it's absolutely amazing um i want to put this up because this is this is such a fascinating comment from vinette and i hope i said that correctly um i was just put in a project for overpayments, and it was a mess. This is the first job I have taken on the insurance side as a claim examiner. I'm a medical coder and have been a medical biller and coder for six years. When I saw the spreadsheet, and I apologize, I'm going to have to take it down because it's a longer comment. Um, it was 2,000 claims. The overpayment logic was based on on not processing at the appropriate benefit level. The system was set to auto pay. Needless to say, I questioned a lot of things and the project was put on hold. I can't wait to work on the provider side again. I appreciate the opportunity, but it is insane the way these insurances work. You know, I couldn't have said it any better. And again, listen, folks, insurance companies are in the business for making money they are not in the business for paying claims on sick people okay there's a reason why middle managers a couple of years ago at blue cross blue shield each got a one million dollar bonus payment because they had the best year of profits that they have had and don't let anybody tell you that during the pandemic the insurance companies struggled They had higher profits during the pandemic than they have had in any decade. So I call BS on all of it. Here's what I will tell you. If you get a claim or a demand from an insurance company um, outside of Medicare, Medicare is a different level of incompetence at times. If you get a demand from commercial insurance companies, telling you that you have an overpayment based on a statistically valid random sample and extrapolation of your post audit claims, 99.9%, they're lying to you. They didn't do it. And I can say that because last year, Paul, how many post audit extrapolations did we work on from commercial payers? And every single time we asked for them to provide us with their sample frames and their methodologies, they couldn't produce it, and they had to walk away. We just had a case settled this week, this past week, on Wednesday. Um, and and I will give a shout-out to this insurance company um, because the gentleman who was in charge of the SIU at Aetna in Texas was outstanding. I won't use his name, but he was outstanding. They hit our client for $394,000. When we called him to the carpet on it, They were very smart to say, give me a number. And we wound up settling at 32 cents on the dollar, okay? Because the client was in the wrong. But this gentleman was one of the most informed, one of the most well-meaning, and one of the most well-thought, you know, thoughtful people I've worked with in a very long time. So to that gentleman at the SIU at Aetna, I salute you on behalf of all of us in the healthcare industry and thank you for doing the right thing and not being a tool. Okay. Paul, any last words on that case that, uh, rhymes with Igma
2: (laughs) (laughs) just two things. Uh, there's a difference between actuarial math and statistical math, and that's probably where some of these things meet. Uh, And uh, I'd also like to point out that I spent six and a half years on the insurance side. And the reason why I still have a soul is because I left. Uh, So we can move on.
1: Okay. And to those of you who are working for the insurance companies, that's not to say you don't have a soul. We're sure you do. But if you really want to make sure of it, come over to the provider side and work with us and help the rebels uh, fight the evil empire and free Luke Skywalker. Okay. Terry Fletcher. I know we have a topic. Good morning, morning, my friend. Um, I know you have a topic that you are extremely ticked off about. I am. But first I
3: wanted, yeah, first I wanted to comment on the payer side. So one thing I did when I was in college, so this would have been the 80s, late 80s. um, I actually worked for a payer as well, who shall not be nameless. But it was when we were actually at times writing, writing checks with like, Pens. <laughs> we had dot matrix computers, and when it didn't um, line up correctly with our checks, we had to actually tear them off and write them out to the providers. But one of the things that uh, we had actually in our manual—now again, this is in the late '80s—I'm hoping this doesn't still exist—was um, that we were supposed. We had a percentage of claims we were supposed to hit denied or pending or ask for information or duplicate because the, the thought process was that the most of the um, Um, I'm sorry, providers would not respond to it, that they would save money because they would not get the information they were requesting, which really was something they couldn't find anyway. And uh, it worked, it worked. I couldn't tell you, because then you have a, um, a timeline. If you don't respond to it in 60 to 90 days, then they can close out the claim and not pay you. So I'm hoping it's improved since then. But after a year of that, I was like, you know, I'm over this. I need to go to the provider side. But yeah, that was a definite lesson in, wow, how are they getting away with this? Um, but I had a question for you before I get into my topic real quick, Sean. You and I have talked you know, recently about the, the False Claim Act and things. And when I read the False Claim Act statute, it's not just about healthcare claims submitted. It's about all kinds of different things. What, who polices the payers on this kind of blatant bad faith, in my opinion? So, I mean, how do they, how do they get away with this? So
1: such a great question. Um, so if if it's an insurance company that has government contracts, right, so they process or they're a third-party administrator on behalf of the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, the VA, TRICARE, CHAMPUS, uh, Medicaid, they are beholden to or they're, they're, they're under the eye of HHS OIG. Uh, and I know Eric Rubenstein was on here. Uh, for a little while, there's no telling whether or not he stuck around other than to just post something so everybody knew he existed. Um, but those government payers uh, are, are under scrutiny of HHS OIG. They also get audited by the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services. Now, if you go back and you take a look at organizations like United Healthcare who had to settle with the federal government for $336 million, uh, or Blue Cross Blue Shield into Thomas Love's settlement, which was a class action lawsuit, or some of the other ones. Um, I will tell you that they they usually get rung up because there's been enough complaints um, issued to the insurance commissioners, or like in New Jersey. One of my favorite places to file a complaint is in New Jersey with the Department of Banking and Insurance. Because I will tell you, Doby does what they're supposed to do. They are a fantastic police agency. Uh, we filed a complaint against a medical director of an insurance company there because they were making medical necessity determinations in a specialty that they had zero training in, they had zero expertise. And come to find out, this medical director wasn't even the person making. The decisions they were leaving it to the judgment of their minions who may or may not have had any clinical background whatsoever and they were using a rubber stamp to stamp this medical director's name now remember for all the providers out there you cannot use a rubber stamp to authenticate your documentation but an insurance payer when they send you a letter Authenticate what they've done; they can rubber stamp it. The wonderful thing about Adobe is they immediately conducted an investigation. They went after the insurance company, and we were sent a letter within thirty days indicating that they have investigated. They have gotten the insurance company to clarify things. The insurance company issued a letter of approval for the services that the patient was in need of, and Dobie closed the. The case, so that's how these commercial payers. And you know the other thing, Terry. To your, you know, you asked a a short question. I gave a terribly long answer. Um, The the other way, you know, the the other reason why these insurance companies get away with it is because people think that they're powerless against the powerful, and that's not true. You have to find the right advocacy. You have to find people who are willing to fight. And I'm telling you, Paul, Stephanie, Scott they can attest to this. I have taken on many cases where I get paid nothing because I believe that my job is to advocate on behalf of patients and providers and to punish those at insurance companies or to see that they get punished for the wrongdoings. So I will pause there. Terry, um, I want to get to the NSA. And talk about that. Now, we're not talking about the National Security Agency. I don't need anybody (laughs) coming after me. So let's talk about what NSA is in healthcare speak.
3: So in the NSA, which is the No Surprises Act, I'm sure everybody's kind of sick of hearing about it. A lot of you out there, um, our listeners believe that this may not apply to you because you're an in-network provider at an in-network facility. But... If you're an, a, a, a physician that works in an a ED department, so emergency department, if you are on rotation in, let's say, uh, radiology or anesthesiology, where you haven't had to contract with certain insurance companies in the past because you're on rotation, then that is this is going to affect you. So uh, what's been happening is obviously patients can't get a surprise out-of-network balance bill. So meaning that the difference between what was billed versus what was paid or not paid or denied. Um, they only can get their share of cost um, from an in-network, um, I guess, um, tally uh, and a reimbursement um, sheet, or they can only get something that's similar to that kind of, you know, some kind of average to what the in-network would have been. Well, what's happening is that a lot of the physicians are disputing what they're actually getting paid or not getting paid. They're trying to negotiate with payers. It's not working. And these are the out-of-network providers that are giving these emergency services to patients. And some are non-emergent as well during that emergent stay. And what's happening is that they're trying to file these independent dispute resolutions, the IDRs, to open up an arbitration. Well, $50 cost to do that, was raised four days before it became effective in January after CMS and HHS said they would not raise it. And it was raised 600% to now $350 to just file, and you don't get that back. And the problem is, and there's been several articles on it, one in particular I, I forwarded to you, Sean, was about the radiology Uh, physicians, pediatric in particular, saying that some of our services don't even hit the $350 threshold. So if you've got, you know, a $100 service that you were paid $50 on, and you want to dispute that saying I should be paid more, you're going to you're going to pay the filing fee for you're going to actually lose money that you don't get back. And just think about all the ED visits that if you're getting paid, let's say on a level four emergency department visit, that is $325. And so now you're only getting paid 250, are you going to dispute that? So my annoyance over the weekend, boy was I hot about this when I when I saw this, is that you once again the you know the government is not favoring the physician. Don't get me started on the Medicare fee schedule and that mess that we're dealing with right now. So it, it but we're sending all this money everywhere else, but we can't fund our providers and making sure that you know, the cost of administrative work that should be internal. That should not fall on a provider. If you, because they got, they were expecting, I guess about 17,000 of these IDRs and they ended up getting 90,000. And they said, because they can't um, because they can't keep up. And they're already backlogged seven, seven months. I think it is. They said that they had to now impose this fee so that they could catch up on the doctor's. You know, just real quick, I have a, just a short thing I want to say about this that really bugs me. So back in the day when I was traveling a lot and I was traveling like 200 days a year for 20 years um, on seminar circuit and, and consults and things like that. And I have a daughter um, and so, and my husband, you know, full-time teacher and coach. So I had an, I, we had au pairs because obviously childcare to do that would be very expensive. So we had somebody that lived with us. One came from Romania and darling, darling girl, we had them each for a year. And so there was somebody physically in our house um, when I was on the road. Well, she came to us one day and said, um, can I get a money order in American dollars for $1,800 because my mom in Romania needs to have a gallbladder surgery? Well, then that, that country, they have socialized medicine. And I said, sure, but you have socialized medicine. It's free. She goes, well, it's kind of free. What it means, and again, she had very thick accent, so it was kind of hard to understand her. But the gist of the conversation was, that they told her mother that if she wanted the surgery done right, she would send eighteen hundred American dollars in a cashier's check. If they, she wanted it done the way they do it there, then it would be covered under the five hundred dollar availability for it to have that gallbladder surgery, or whatever it was at that time. And I'm like, you've got to be kidding me. She goes, Yeah, it, you know, they because we don't have the best physicians because we're on socialized medicine. Now I know I'm going to get some backlash on that, but. This is something that somebody, that was a personal story that somebody said to me. And I'm like, all I can think about when I hear this stuff is this is where we're headed as far as not having the best physicians in the world if we are going to continue to attack their reimbursement like this. And this isn't even for things that make sense. So So, so I'll stop ranting. I'm not happy right now. So,
1: So lesson learned. If you're if you're over in the eastern block of Europe and you want something done correctly, you're going to have to pay a whole lot of money for it. If you want it done and you're willing to take the risk that you could potentially turn out to be from another planet, then you just go with whoever's available. And it could be Sean Weiss who shows up with a mask and a syringe full right. of it's like uh, the oh,
3: hr block commercial where they're like doing your plumbing and they're like excuse me i, I do taxes at night i'm like what so if this is very similar to me when i see this stuff yeah exactly eric but <laughs> this is where i'm i'm so frustrated and, and betty hovey and i were actually on linkedin having a conversation back and forth about this as well they're really only expecting a few thousand claims a year you know and in, in relativity 17 to 20 but when you get 90,000 in a 5 month period, you know, you have to figure out that something is wrong with the system and you need to fix it if because it's so payer friendly. They can Here's either the, the position or not.
1: Yeah. Here's the problem that I have with the way things were done. Okay? One all the way through December, okay? They indicated that in 2023 the cost to go to an administrative procedure for the independent dispute resolution was going to be $50, okay? All the way up until December 22nd or 23rd, whatever it was. Then they decided, oh, hey, maybe we should have actually thought this through a little bit more because what are the odds that there are going to be providers who are actually going to dispute that they weren't paid or paid accurately on a claim. Oh, let, let's only, you know, hey, let's only think about maybe the number is going to be, you know, really small as opposed to the reality that it's going to be incredibly high. And then not only did they raise it, to your point, Terry, they raised it 600%. 600%. Now, those of you may see this little oh hey, and I have to let you in on this, okay so my five year old granddaughter emery rose Emery Rose is a very matter of fact person, and when she is trying to make sure that she is understanding what you're saying so that she makes sure she can hold your feet to the fire, she always starts off the Discussion with, oh, hey, remember, and that's when you know you're in big trouble. So that's why I kind of threw that out there. The oh hey, well, well, Sean, the thing that bothers me about this
3: is is that you know instead of taking action to promote to promote reasonable um, reimbursement by the insurers, which would limit providers' need to have to request arbitration, CMS chose to find physicians. That's what I call it. Because a three hundred and fifty dollars yep. fee will accomplish their goal of limiting providers' ability to access arbitration, yep. because a lot of them aren't going to do it. And to your point of what you were talking about, uh, if, if you're in Paul's situation, you know, and you said, you know, there has to be a, an advocate or a voice out there. What do we collectively, as the Compliance Rental Panel, tell providers, you know, about this when they're going to lose money? They may win their they may win their arbitration. They most likely will win it. But they're going to lose money by, you know, maybe by having to,
4: to yeah,
1: having to go to the process. So what one, we of the thing, yeah, one of the things that they can do and to uh, Cairo Medicare, you're 100 percent correct. This is very similar to what transpired with the ALJs uh, within Medicare. Very. They were ill equipped, ill prepared. And as a result, it led to more than 648,000 claims. We had a backlog of 10 years. Paul Spencer and I last year just handled the last of our outstanding administrative law judge reviews with CMS that were filed in 2013. We finally got to those last year. Um, So Terry, to your question, and then Scott, I want to move into what's going on with you because you and Stephanie had two very fascinating provider interactions last week. And I want to talk about those because they're extremely important tied to evaluation and management services. Um, with, with what you tell providers is we need to go back to the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, and we need to help them to understand that, listen, where it would make sense is if you will allow us to take all claims that are similar in denial, lump them together so that our outstanding demand exceeds what the administrative costs for filing would be. So now if I go to, you know, an independent, you know, uh, uh, um, dispute council, an IDC um, or IDRC, if I go to one of those and now I have $3,000 in claims because I was able to bundle them all together, that $350, yeah, it's still an expense, but I know I'm going to prevail. And if I prevail here, then the $350 I'm willing to sacrifice to get, you know, $2,000, $3,000, $8,000, $10,000. Two thousand, three thousand, eight thousand, ten thousand dollars to Betty Hovey's. You know, uh, point. <clears throat> you know, this is this is what happens with folks in government sometimes when they don't stop and think about the impact of what they are going to do. And this this was in completely bad form. This showed bad faith all the way around. To go all the way up until two days prior to Christmas, when you know. Nobody's really paying attention until after the new year, but by then it's too late because the new amount already goes into effect. and remember, none of this was put forward for public comment. This was a a one-sided unilateral decision to say to heck with the providers, we're going to increase this to three hundred you know to you know three hundred and fifty dollars six hundred times the amount that we originally promised it was going to be right up until Christmas break and then not give anybody an opportunity to respond to it. Absolutely despicable. Providers should be up in arms. They should be going to their specialty societies. The specialty societies should get off their derriers and they should use their advocacy power to go to CMS and to file a grievance, file a petition, get people like Karen George, who is an incredible attorney who focuses on the No Surprises Act out of California, get her to engage, get her to advocate, and see if we can't get a change. Um, to Betty Hovey's point, yeah, you just nailed the, you just nailed it on the head. One, fix the fee schedule payment issues, or two, make it restrictive to submit IDRs. Again, CMS has just completely failed providers, and it's unfortunate. All right, let's move on from that. And Terry, I know I'm with you. I understand completely why you are ticked off. All right, uh, Scott Craft, I want to come to you. And I want to talk about something that is really important um, in the world of evaluation and management services, especially the 2023 e services, because we've talked about this term on this uh, panel in the past, on this roundtable, and it's a term called clinical plagiarism. Take it away, buddy.
4: Yes. Yeah, so clinical plagiarism. And I think we all know what plagiarism is. And so putting together clinical plagiarism is not a very hard thing to do. But I think, I, I wanna frame this by saying that as an auditor, uh, I think we're all well aware of uh, the view of cloning and carrying forward documentation and things of that nature. The reason I think clinical plagiarism is worse is that essentially the provider's documentation becomes very chameleon-like. So the provider is just adopting the style of whichever provider he or she is picking up the note from so i will audit a provider who does a lot of clinical plagiarism and i will see notes that are incredibly different in structure style shape and are completely out of step with what in my view a reasonable person would do so most providers i work with you know, they're going to document their charts the same way, right? They might document a subjective a certain way. They tend to do similar exams, take similar histories. They tend to lay out their assessment and plan in the same way. Now, these providers will come in and I'll look at 10 or 20 charts. And in one chart, you know, they will laundry list the diagnoses and then have the plan at the top of the note. Uh, In another note, they might have the history in the exam first, and then they have the uh, medical decision-making with each condition laid out. And so, you know, I shared this feedback with uh, a recent group that I was working with, and this is not the first time this has happened. So I basically tried to explain what clinical plagiarism was, and I used that phrase uh, because it basically means to take the work of another uh, without giving them credit in a clinical construct. And the feedback that I had gotten, and I'm going to try to say this exactly as I remember it, is uh, the providers and the physician leadership would prefer you not use that phrase because they find it upsetting. <laughs> and, and, you know, I, to, to be in defense of this group that I work with, the, so people do who, we. You know, <laughs> the people who were sending me this feedback were more in line with my way of thinking than, than the providers. And And, you know, the thing that I sort of said was if they think it's upsetting hearing me say it, Wait until, wait until the provider sees what happens when the payer comes in and look at, looks at it because I, for some of these providers who, who do this a lot, like I said at the outset, you can't really tell what this provider, you know, it's almost like you, don't, you have no idea how they document, and you have no idea what they do because they just take on the style of whoever they pick up the note for and they're putting in copious amounts of work and you know this is an epic provider so i can go in and i can see well you know who wrote what and where did this came from or where did this come from and when was it created and, and you know i'm seeing things that were taken from another provider that were documented you know 6 days previously and this is 85% of the documentation it's 90% of the documentation and i cannot emphasize enough we can talk about carrying forward aspects of your own documentation. And I I think everybody does that to some degree, not everybody, but as I explained to providers, it's not my expectation that you would start with a blank page every single day, but it's that I can discern from your documentation what you've done on that specific day so that I can tell if the patient is worse, if the patient is better, if the patient's diagnoses have evolved. When you are taking things from another provider, you are essentially passing off work as your own that is not your own. And I think it's very difficult to assert that you are repeating the work when the style of the work as it is documented is so different on a day to day basis. And so if you see this going on uh, in your organization, uh, you should stop it immediately. And, and I realize that, you know, yeah, it's a jarring term uh clinical plagiarism right most of us uh, as i've said on this podcast before i actually have a journalism background and they they run you through the plagiarism pretty pretty early and explain what that means and how you source things and how you how you give and use credit and all the rest of that in this universe taking things that somebody else did and and uh, attempting to say that you did them is not something that you should ever do now if you are a provider who's going to be Rotating on a patient, and then you're going to rotate out. You rotate back in. You know, look, if you want to pick up your own note and start updating off of that foundation, that's fine. If you're taking over from somebody else, uh, the provider should be starting that documentation from scratch on their first visit. They should be doing their analysis much in the same way that a provider will tell me, "Well, I picked up the patient's care on this day." Like back under the old guidelines, they'd get additional intensity for a new problem. and come in and say, "Well," Today's the day that I came in and I picked up the management of the patient. Your entire note should have that framing. It should be your own documentation from start to finish. And and like I say, I wanted to talk about it because I do feel like every time I use that term, the feedback that I get is not that this is a major problem and we should correct it. It's like, can you not say that? (laughs) Can you kind of like describe it differently? And look, it's a serious term because it's a serious problem and it's it's. To me, like I say, it is far more serious than carrying forward your own stuff. Um, I mean, that's problematic on its own level. But uh, you know, just grabbing the whoever was the last person to see the patient and picking up their note, taking all of it, and tweaking it uh, is not a good path to be on.
1: So one of the things, and this is such a brilliant conversation for a lot of reasons, right? Because we we think about the False Claims Act, we think about the healthcare fraud statutes. We think about what's going on with providers right now where, you know, prosecutors across the country are contemplating convening grand juries because they think they have something on somebody. One of the things that I tell all of my clients is, listen, there's nothing wrong with cutting and pasting information from other dates of service. If it's your information, there's nothing wrong with cutting and pasting information from another provider's documentation into your own. But if you're going to do that, you need to have some kind of a drop down statement that's created that says this document may contain information that exists in prior dates of service. It may also contain information abstracted from another provider involved in the care of this patient. None of this information was used to drive what level of ENM service was selected for this patient encounter. I will tell you why I I put that out there. I had a case last year with Ron Chapman where we actually uh, had prior to getting Ron involved in the case, we had actually created that kind of a standard statement for the client and they used it sparingly, you know, because cutting and pasting is not always a smart thing to do. It leads to sometimes more problems than what it's worth, but when we were able to go before the, uh, the prosecutor on what they call a reverse proffer, and we were able to explain to them, the information that you're seeing here is information that's vital to the physician. Because remember, physicians will tell you, they document for themselves. They don't document for insurance companies. They document for themselves. They document so they know what transpired at a prior encounter. So that the next time the patient comes in, as opposed to having to go back through and read you know pages and pages of notes, they have an excerpt that refreshes their memory. Now, we know from the business side of medicine that physicians are documenting for what reason? To satisfy, to substantiate the CPT codes that were billed and paid by an insurance company. But putting a you know a, a drop-down statement like that in there. Was the difference between the prosecutor looking at it and and us being able to say to him, look, I understand there were seven pages of notes for something that the doctor only billed a 99212 or a 99213 on, but here's the reason why. And it's not that these notes were cloned, it's that the doctor carries this information forward for informational purposes only. And they walked away from it. It was a it it was a bona fide disclosure. It was a legitimate use of that that drop down into the note, and it saved this provider a ton of headaches and ton of problems.
4: Go ahead. Scott. yeah, and I, and I think I would just uh, I see Lisa's comment up there. and I you know, again, reflecting on my background, you know if you're giving credit to the source of the information, and you're not using it in the production of your own service level, that's a different conversation, right? So when you think about plagiarism in like a journalistic construct, right? Like it's not plagiarism when you say, well, the Washington Post reported this, right? I'm giving them credit for what they did. And in this example, you're saying, I reviewed the previous provider's note, it states the following, and I'm using that as part of my documentation. Now under the guidelines, we have a mechanism to give you some credit for the reviewing of a work the, of the work of another provider, and, and I think statements like sh- what the ones that Sean have ma- Sean made reference to are important because what we're trying to do is make sure we credit you accurately for the work performed. And you know, I think in some of the examples that I'm discussing, the provider, whether intentionally or not, is putting things into a note that they're going to get credit for that they did not actually do, and that's appending their service levels in a way that works out in their in their favor. And it's their responsibility as the rendering provider to create documentation that accurately reflects and conveys the work that they did. And, and and you know, I if I were a payer, I would be very suspicious if I saw the same provider treating the same type of conditions but always documenting different exams and different structure because they're not they're just taking these things from another provider and they're trying to say well I repeated the work, right? Well I don't think that's very credible when everything looks very different right it's almost as if i look it's almost as if you treated the previous provider's note as a cheat sheet and said well this is what that provider did and so so as to not have to rewrite it i will just redo it in this manner and i don't really think that's how this works and i think some of these things even as you get beyond you know copying pasting and clinical plagiarism and differentiating those things i think it's a good idea to revisit what you would permit to be carried forward under any circumstances, particularly under the new guidelines, right? So if a provider tends to carry forward a time statement that says I spent X number of minutes, at at some point we say, well, is it a clone statement to say I spent 50 minutes with the patient every day? Is it a clone statement to say I discussed the patient's case with a cardiologist? And so there's a bigger conversation to be had here, Uh, but I do think it's important to understand if you're taking things from another provider's note, that you shouldn't be getting credit for that activity. You should be saying where it's coming from. And if you're using it to have a better understanding of the patient's condition, we have a mechanism under the guidelines to credit that, but it shouldn't be being credited into like your treatment plan. Yeah.
1: So two quick points that I want to make, and then Stephanie, I want to come to you. Uh, First point, okay? So last week, I just came off of a criminal trial in the Eastern District of Michigan. Uh, Leslie Pompey, P-O-M-P-Y, uh, he is a triple-boarded uh, pain management, anesthesiologist, and substance uh, abuse uh, treatment physician. 38 counts against this provider. Um, some of the lesser charges were the healthcare fraud because there were Substance Control Act violations, um, which always are very serious. Um, but there was health care fraud attached to it. Two of the things that the prosecutor brought up in the case, one <clears throat> and Scott, excuse me, this goes directly to your point they they were prosecuting him on the medical the medically impossible days, right so what they said is you exceeded twenty four hours in a day or you exceeded a certain number of hours in a day that we just do not believe is realistic that a physician could actually provide those services because they were using the quote-unquote typical times from the 95 and 97 E&M guidelines, right? Because this case was from 2016. Now, using a statement that you spent 45 minutes or 50 minutes with every single patient and you're seeing 40 patients in a day, not very good, not very smart. You need to document precisely, if you're going to use time, precisely how much time I know you're not required to use a start and stop time, but I love start and stop times because it makes it almost impossible for somebody to argue that. And then it makes sure that you're counting your actual hours in the workday. Number two, the other document, and Scott, I'll just say this and I'll come right back to you for your your thoughts on this. Number two is cloning. The prosecutor in this case brought up uh, on the screen for me in front of the jury this history of present illness, okay? And one thing that I want to say, <clears throat> um, one thing that I want to say uh, about 95 and 97 documentation guidelines, don't lose sight that they are still relevant from a regulatory and legal standpoint. I know everybody's focused on the 2021 a documentation guidelines and the 2023 guidelines, but there are statute of limitations There are look-back periods where the 95 and 97 guidelines are still applicable. Don't forget about that because that's what these cases are being prosecuted on. They brought up an HPI, and the HPI had certain information, and the prosecutor said, Mr. Weiss, do you recognize this? And I said, if it's something that I audited, I'm sure I would recognize it. And he said, okay, and he took it down, didn't ask me any questions about it. Then he put up an HPI from another data service, and he said, Mr. Weiss, same HPI, and he took it down. I literally had it up there for maybe 10 seconds, and I said, well, it came down pretty quick. I mean, you know, I, I think there were some words that appeared to be similar to me. Now, I want you to hear why I'm telling this, because this is a technique and this is a game that some prosecutors will play. But this is why having brilliant, experienced legal counsel is so important. Defense counsel went back after they were done cross-examining me and said to the paralegal from the prosecutor, I need you to pull up the first HPI and the second HPI, and I want you to put them on the screen side by side. And he did that. And Ron got up and he said, Mr. Weiss, Take a look at the HPI that you looked at. And I said, yes, sir. And he said, okay. Now, take a look at this second HPI. And he said, and just so you know, this is not a claim that you ever reviewed. This is how they play these games. And the thing that I tried to explain to a jury is that prosecutors Auditors from insurance companies oftentimes will try to look at EM services in a vacuum. And the job that I had was to look at each individual date of service to make a determination as to whether or not the documentation substantiated the level of service that was billed. There were no consecutive dates of service for me to be able to look at to determine if there was cloning, but. What the prosecution tried to do, and they failed miserably in this case, was they pulled a date of service that was outside of what we were looking at. All right. So be uh, careful with the cloning and be careful with counting of time, Scott. I'll come back yeah, to you for your final thought. Go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah. There's just,
4: this the one thing I want to say about this, and 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 you know, we focused on the word clinical plagiarism. We've talked a little bit about fraud, right? And I think when you I don't want to say accused, but when you reference to a provider that there's a possibility that they may have done these things, oftentimes there's quite a bit of umbrage taken. And I think I pointed that out when I started out by saying clinical plagiarism, the feedback I got was, so it's a really rough word, right? If we can somehow say that a little differently. I think what's important to take away from this is it's not that I might feel like you are committing fraud, or it's not like, You know, you're definitively doing these things with malice, but there is a reality that if if a prosecutor, as Sean has pointed out here, starts to look at patterns of things that it appears as though you might be doing, it becomes a little bit more difficult to append those things. And the idea is not that, you, you know, certainly we can go into court, Sean's gone into court and won many of these cases, but these are pyrrhic victories, they're very expensive things to go through. And so, you know, you don't really want the perception that you're participating in these behaviors because you don't have strong standards in place for what constitutes acceptable documentation practices.
1: Absolutely. Well said. All right, Stephanie, these last seven minutes that we have, I saved the best for last, my friend. Let's talk about what you dealt with last week in your provider training, because this is another unbelievably important topic that, All of you as coders, billers, compliance professionals, physicians need to understand. Go ahead.
5: Okay. So I think a lot of what um, everybody's been talking about up to this point plays into what I wanted to talk about. And first and foremost, um, just to give you a little bit of background as to why I wanted to bring this up, I had a large training session that I had to do last week and it's in a organization that's set up in a way where it's not even possible to have coders in place for every single claim that they have. Um, there are many, many providers, and based on the provider number, the claim number, it's not even physically possible to have all of those codes reviewed with the structure they currently have. So when i'm conducting the training during the session sometimes i'll have the chat box up just to see if there's something that uh people are really confused on and i start to see these comments coming through from a provider who's very irritated and annoyed with the training session and he starts making comments about how um you know it just seems like a lot of information this is too much to handle we're talking about too much at once just a lot of um you know comments about not you know being overwhelmed in general just too much so you know it has me thinking because throughout the entire hour today everyone's been talking about the fact that you know we do what we do to make sure that the worst doesn't happen right even in the very beginning with paul and sean talking about those um, insurance auditors and what can sometimes happen during those reviews It is our job as educators hopefully to help the providers to understand that when it's their responsibility we're trying to prevent that worst case scenario yes the guidelines have a lot of different rules that are built in Um, a lot of those comments were coming through when i was talking about data which yeah that's i hate that section that's the worst section of all the guidelines our middle column but we have to understand it. And one of the issues too, with all of that for the particular training that I was doing, it's in a setting where the organization basically has to create their own EMR system because they're staffing other facilities. So they're not using internal systems. Um, That provider is responsible for fully displaying, for example, all of their their own orders that they're putting in. They don't have an order template auto-populating, making their lives easier. They've got to say the name of medications and a lot of other things. So I I get the frustration and I know in general for all of us on here we, we get comments like that often. It's not just this one session that I've had. I get the frustration. Providers do not get into medicine to focus on what it is that our main focus is. They just don't. But it's the necessary evil and they have to be aware um, especially when there's only processes in place from a billing standpoint and i had pointed this out in the group a little bit before as well Um, it really is the organization's job when providers are starting to to really sit down and get providers to understand how they are structured what people they have in different roles Um, With something like this, when you have billing staff, that in no way means that there is a coder there. And that's some of what I brought to light at the end of that particular training session is talking about the differences between billing teams and coding teams. I'm sure that's incredibly frustrating for all of those providers to not have day-to-day encounter-to-encounter coding support. But that's the company you work for and that's your reality. And at the end of the day, it's also your name going out on the claim with your NPI number. So what do you want that outcome to look at? You know, it does put a lot of responsibility on the providers.
1: Well said. You know, one of the things that I want to make sure um, that we leave everybody today with. And and Terry, thanks for reminding me to do this. Um, When we use terms like fraud, waste, abuse, cloning, clinical plagiarism, we use these terms because these are the terms that are being used by investigators at the Office of Inspector General, by investigators at the UPICS, by investigators at the Special Investigative Units, by prosecutors. So it's I understand... They're dirty words and nobody likes the F word. But the reality is we're in a new era. And this is a new era of heightened investigations. It is a new era of overly aggressive, overzealous prosecutions that are half-baked, absent any real true investigation, and lacking. One of the things that absolutely blew my mind in the Pompey case And it's the same thing that happened in the Bothra case, which was, you would think if the government is going after somebody for $454 million and 54 indictments against four physicians, that they would have had an expert that they put on the stand. And they didn't. They didn't. It was defense counsel that was smart enough to reach out to someone like myself to say, I need to put you on a stand. And it was through the testimony that I was able to provide, along with other incredible testimony from Dr. Murphy, who is an uh, uh incredible Johns Hopkins educated, or I'm sorry, not Johns Hopkins, Mayo educated physician. Our testimony was what was able to persuade the jury to sit there and force prosecutors to listen to not guilty after not guilty after not guilty. 54 times as each count was read off in the Bothra and Lewis at all case, and 38 not guilties in a row on the Pompey case. This is why I do what I do. I love what I do. I love getting to hang out with each and every single one of you all who's tuned in, logged on, and hung out with us for this past hour to this incredible panel. I love you guys so much. Thank you for always being here. Stephanie Howard, Paul Spencer, Terry Fletcher, Scott Kraft. We missed our great friend, uh, Christine Hall, this week, but I'm sure she'll be back next week. Terry and I will be back tomorrow with our hashtag Terry Tuesday. I'm sure that will be pretty salty if I know Terry. And then on Wednesday, my good friend and I, Jordan Johnson, will be doing J Squared, which is our data analytics and the intersection of where the business of medicine and regulatory compliance meet. And then Terry and I will be off to Phoenix, Arizona. For the NSCHBC winter meeting uh, Wednesday and Thursday this week. So we are at 1 o'clock. We are right on time. Thank you all. Until tomorrow, remember, be good to yourself. But more importantly, y'all be good to each other. Take care.
0: You've been listening to The Compliance Guy. Sean has been doing this for 28 years. He holds 10 national board certifications. He's a partner and the Vice President of Compliance for Doctors Management, LLC. He's a subject matter expert in federal court. He's lectured at the most prestigious institutions. He's engaged with members of Congress in both chambers. So what we're saying is he's qualified? We hope you've enjoyed the show. Make sure to like, rate, and review. And we'll be back soon. But in the meantime, you can find us on social media at The Compliance Guy. See you next time on The Compliance Guy.